0: When the sons of Jesse came to be presented and to have a king chosen from among them, the prophet Samuel looked on Eliab, the oldest, and thought, Surely the Lord's anointed is now before the Lord. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. The Lord does not see as mortals see, they look on the outward appearance but the Lord looks on the heart. Please pray with me. Almighty God, you alone can bring into order the unruly wills and affections of sinners. Grant your people grace to love what you command and desire what you promise, that among the swift and varied changes of the world, our hearts may surely there be fixed where true joys are to be found. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Please be seated. You'll note two things right off the top of this sermon. First, that wasn't my normal pre-sermon prayer. It was the collect appointed for today that we heard earlier in the service, this the fifth Sunday of Lent. This is a prayer written by Thomas Cranmer, the first Protestant Archbishop of Canterbury and framer of the worship service that we use even up to today. You'll also note that the little snippet of Bible I read wasn't from any of today's readings. In fact, it was from last week. Those uh, super churchy among you will have noticed, after a lot of thought and prayer, I decided that J.D. really messed up last week by not preaching on this text, and I thought I was being called by God to rectify his mistake. (laughs) In truth, though, um, I know you're worried now because you're thinking to yourself, they just had me stand for that whole gospel reading and he's not even going to preach on it. (laughs) In truth, though, this morning's lesson about Jesus' miraculous raising of Lazarus from the dead was the text that Liz Curtis Higgs presented on at our Lent speaker series not 10 days ago. So if you'd like to hear a wonderful and moving good gospel word on this text, go to our website and listen to Liz Curtis Higgs and her wonderful talk. I just couldn't think of a way to preach on this reading this morning without basically saying a lot of the same things that she already said. So I'm going to do something different. What I'm going to do is preach on that prayer, that collect of the day, and use last week's reading wherein David is selected from amongst his brothers to be the next king of Israel, to help illustrate it. So, are we situated? You all know what's going on? Last week's reading from Samuel and the collect appointed for today. Listen again. Almighty God, you alone can bring into order the unruly wills and affections of sinners Grant your people grace to love what you command and desire what you promise that among the swift and varied changes of the world our hearts may surely there be fixed where true joys are to be found through Jesus Christ our Lord who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit one God, now and forever. This prayer written in the middle of the 16th century, describes humankind so perfectly that it's still in use. Today, Anglican churches all over the world say this prayer every year. And Cranmer, in the writing of this prayer, makes a profound statement about the interrelationship of the three main things that make up a person. The heart, the mind, and the will. And he's also giving us great insight into the bad news about human nature and the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So that's what I want to talk to you a little bit about this morning. Nothing big, just your heart, your mind, your will, and the gospel of Jesus Christ. Before I get there, I want to start with a story. Now, I've always been a basketball player, and I've always been skinny. I guess I more accurately should say that I used to be skinny, Um, now I'm just sort of fluffy. Um, But the point is I've never been strong, that's sort of the point I want to make here, and to play basketball, to play it well, at the highest levels, you have to be strong, a certain level of strength is required, and I've just never had it. When I was playing at the highest levels I ever reached, I was 6'5 or 6'6 and I weighed 185 pounds. could see my ribs when I took a deep breath. Of course, I was also eating two-foot-long subs every night for dinner, so perhaps my current fluffiness is well-deserved. But the point, and I promise you that there's a point to all this, is that everyone I ever played with told me that if I wanted to be really great, I had to work out to get stronger, lift weights. Imagine how much better you'd be, they said, if you just worked out. Now, I hate working out. Hate it. Hate, hate, hate. I hate the smell. I hate the clothes. I hate how it makes me feel. I hate that the whole wall is a mirror. I hate everything about it. <laughs> but I wanted to be a better basketball player, so every three months or so, I'd make this commitment to myself, print out some workout that I found online, and start going to the gym. And the hope, I suppose, was that after a while, I'd get to like it. You know, an acquired taste. Fake it till you make it, as they say. And this is how we think things go. This is how we think life works. This is how we imagine the relationship between the heart, the will, and the mind works, right? First, you make a decision. In my case, I wanna be better at basketball, so I'm going to work out. And then, after your mind makes a decision, you apply your will to the problem. The path to accomplishing the thing your mind has chosen isn't always easy, so you've got to invoke the old willpower, right? If You want to be a doctor, you've got to go to med school. A lawyer, law school. If you want to be strong, you've got to work out. You hate it, but it's necessary, so you do it. And then the idea is your heart comes around eventually. One day, hopefully, you find yourself loving the thing you used to hate. This is what they say about Brussels sprouts, too. So in a nutshell, we act as if the way things works is this. What the mind chooses, the will works for. And the heart catches up. Sounds normal, right? This is how we live. This is how we think it works except my heart never came around. My heart never caught up. Remember how I said I'd start working out every three months? That's because I'd quit after a week every time. My hatred was just too strong. It wasn't until years later when I found myself agreeing to wake up at 5 a.m. to go to the YMCA with two guys I barely knew that I had my breakthrough, my epiphany. Again, I did it for about a week before my eyes were opened like Saul on the way to Tarsus and I realized how much I hated working out. So I quit for good. I have not lifted a weight since. Not an ounce. Now I lift forkfuls of General So's chicken. So let's look at Thomas Cranmer's prayer again. Almighty God, he says, you alone can bring into order the unruly wills and affections of sinners. Grant your people grace to love what you command and desire what you promise that among the swift and varied changes of the world our hearts may surely there be fixed where true joys are to be found through Jesus Christ our Lord. Who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God now and forever. Cranmer, it seems, would argue with our what the mind chooses, the will works for, and the heart will catch up paradigm. He's asking God to intervene. He says that God alone can bring into order the unruly wills and affections of sinners. He asks, this amazing thing that God will give us the grace to love what he commands and desire what he promises. Isn't that fascinating? We don't pray to understand or to know what God commands. We pray to love it. We ask the Lord to reorient not our minds, but our hearts. And the reason Cranmer has us pray in this way is that he knows our paradigm is exactly backwards. We imagine, remember, that our mind makes a decision first, and then we apply our will, and then our heart, hopefully, will catch up at the end. If we choose, for instance, to obey God's commands, honor your father and mother, turn the other cheek, love your enemies, give away all you have, we think we make that choice and then work hard at it, apply our willpower. We hope that the heart, the love, will come later. But it doesn't. Just like me and my workout, when you're working hard to follow commandments, it's not love that comes. Exhaustion comes. Resentment comes. The realities of our lives reveal that our paradigm is backwards. Let me tell you how it really works. What the heart desires, the will chooses, and the mind justifies. The order is completely reversed from what we think is true. The mind is the last thing to get involved. What the heart desires, the will chooses and the mind justifies. Martin Luther, the great German reformer, said that. And it's obviously true to human experience, despite the fact that we continually act as if the other is. What the heart desires, the will chooses, and the mind justifies. I have to follow my heart, we say. Anyone who's ever been attracted to someone who wasn't their spouse knows that this is true. What the heart desires, the will chooses, and the mind justifies. Anyone who's ever promised themselves that they'll never eat a whole sleeve of Oreos at midnight again knows that this is true. What the heart desires, the will chooses, and the mind justifies. We're not lusting, we tell ourselves, we're just appreciating the beauty of God's creation. We're not gluttonous, This is the last sleeve, and we swear we're not going to get another one of those boxes of ten sleeves of Oreos the next time we go to Costco. We do whatever it is our heart desires, and then try to figure out a good excuse for why we acted that way. What the heart desires, the will chooses, and the mind justifies. St. Paul provides the biblical evidence that our paradigm is backward by describing every human being perfectly in Romans 7, when he says, I do not understand what I do, for what I want to do I do not do, but what I hate I do, or I have the desire to do what is good. In other words, my mind wants to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. For I do not do the good I want to do, but the evil I do not want to do, this I keep on doing. Paul knows that his mind and his will are slaves to his heart. And when his heart isn't set on the right things, he finds that there's nothing he can do to stop himself. We find ourselves right there with him. Jeremiah 17, 9 says that the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? This is where last week's reading from Samuel comes in. The Lord tells Samuel that he's not choosing the eldest, strongest, and most handsome son because he doesn't see as humans see. We look at the surface, says God, but he looks at the heart. And we hear that as though it's good news. Right? But that's backwards too. I would much rather have God look at my surface than at my heart. I can keep my surface pretty ship I bet you think I'm a pretty good guy. It's when you get into my heart, into my twisted desires, my selfish ambition, my deep-seated sinful nature that things start getting really ugly. Jeremiah is completely right. My heart and yours are deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who even can understand them? And so after writing that section in Romans 7 about not being able to do the things he wants to do and continually doing the things that he hates, Paul despairs. Knowing Jeremiah's words to be true He calls out in agony, who will rescue me from this body of death? And this is the cry of every person who realizes that they are being led around by a deceitful heart and are at the mercy of its sinful desires. And so all of a sudden, this sort of revolutionary idea that what the heart chooses, what the heart wants, the will chooses, and the mind justifies becomes much more than just an interesting intellectual exercise. This prayer that we prayed today that was written so long ago is God's two words to us in sort of a seismic little package. First, the law. Your heart is deceitful, and on your own you are ruined. But finally, the gospel. You are not on your own. You are in desperate need of a Savior, yes, but that desperately needed Savior has come. This Savior, Jesus Christ, is a Savior who comes to us while we are doing the things we ought not to do, and while we are failing to do the things we ought to do. A Savior who comes to us while we are sinners, A Savior who looks past our shiny exteriors and into our desperately broken hearts. A Savior who will come to us while we occupy, in St. Paul's words, this body of death. We have the one Savior, the one and only Son of Almighty God, who by his sacrifice that we'll start remembering and celebrating in earnest this upcoming week, brought to fruition God's promise from Ezekiel 36 when he said, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. I will remove the heart of stone from you and give you a heart of flesh. Who will rescue us from this body of death? Thanks be to God. Says St. Paul in the very next sentence, who saves through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Let's pray one more time. Almighty God, you alone can bring into order the unruly wills and affections of sinners. Grant your people grace to love what you command and desire what you promise, that among the swift and varied changes of the world, our hearts may surely there be fixed, where true joys are to be found, through Jesus Christ our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen.